This is Space 101.1 KMGP LPFM Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right, time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Good evening, and welcome to another live broadcast of Cascade of History. We're coming to you live from Sandpoint, Magnuson Park, the historic former Navy base here on the shores of Lake Washington in the city of Seattle, the perfect place to talk about Northwest history from all around the Oregon country, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia. We're here every week at this time. We're live for an hour. You can also get us as a podcast at all your favorite podcast platforms. Uh, but we're here uh, talking about stuff going on in local history that interesting organizations and groups are doing to celebrate, preserve, and share Pacific Northwest history. I've got a good show tonight. We've got a bunch of stuff coming up. We'll probably play a few Northwest Christmas songs along the way. We'll talk to um, Anna Harbine from the Museum of Arts and Culture in Spokane about uh, Spokane holiday traditions, kind of downtown Spokane, Spokane environs, uh, things that have been going on there for a long time, or maybe that used to go on there around some of the big department stores and that sort of stuff. And then uh, later tonight, we'll also have that second installment, no, excuse me, it's the third installment in the 1951 recording from that series called Their Name Was Courage. Uh, this is this, this thing called the Blackie of Natchez Valley, the heartwarming tale of a boy and his ox. You might remember, you just might remember how, um, how last week's episode ended. So it's Blackie, eh? Leg broken, Kearney? And might as well be. Pull tendon. Hugh wasn't watching. Wagon hit that big rock. Blackie. Oh, Blackie. Yes, we ended on a real cliffhanger last week. And if you remember, it was, it was completely random because I just randomly grabbed four minutes of that show and we ended on a really good cliffhanger. But we'll catch up with uh, Blackie and uh, his, uh, the, the boy who takes care of him there in the Natchez Valley back in the 1850s. Um, we're also going to talk to Lori Carter, who's down in Pierce County, with an update on the effort in the city of Sumner to save the Ryan House. They've, we've had the guests from that group on a few times here this autumn as the city of Sumner has wrestled with trying to tear down a... Uh, a house that dates back parts of it to the 1860s. But before we do that, we have a very special guest joining us right now. I'll see if I can get him on the line here. Kerry Timchuk, can you hear me? I can hear you. Ah, terrific. Thanks for joining us on the big show tonight. It's Kerry Timchuk. He's the executive director of the Oregon Historical Society. And we're going to talk to you about Portland holiday traditions around the downtown core there and things that have, you know, been going on over the old over the many decades in Portland that, that people celebrate the holidays. But before we do that, after I arranged with uh, with you guys to have you on the show tonight, I realized that today is a really special day in the history of the Oregon Historical Society. Well, it is. Today, 125 years ago today, December 17, 1898, a group of leading Oregonians and leading Portlanders gathered at what was then the Portland Library, and they formed the Oregon Historical Society. And so we've been celebrating our 125th birthday all year long, our anniversary, and today today is our birthday. Wow, I don't think we look a day over 110. Yeah, I guess. We, are, we are actually 125. <laughs> and they, they said it wouldn't last. They um, said it wouldn't last. That's pretty amazing, because that's, let's see, 1898, so, okay, so that's that, yeah, 125 years. That's, that's a good long time. Um, 
and how do you know what number director you are in the number in terms of the entire history of the historical you know, society? I'm, I think I'm eighth or ninth or tenth or something. The longest lasting one was 35 years. The legendary Tom Vaughn, who was executive <laughs> director from 1954 to 1989. Wow! This is my 13th year, and you know every state has the equivalent of, of us. There, of course, is the Washington Historical Society in the Idaho, and you, you name it. We're a little bit different than the fact that we are actually a 501c3. Uh, many state historical societies are state agencies, as it is in Washington. The Washington Historical Society is a state agency, and they're state employees, and we have always been, on our own, a 501c3, uh, telling the, the, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and reporting on all things Oregon history. See, and I think that's pretty cool. I mean, I know it's the, the state state funding is great when it's you know when it's uh, steady and constant and growing and does everything you need it to do. And I don't think that's exactly the the way it's been necessarily here at the historical no, society in Tacoma. But what I like about you guys um, and or- Oregon's different from Washington for a couple things. And one of my crackpot theories is because Oregon became a state thirty years before Washington, you guys had access to all this sort of. I don't know. You, you could vote in the 1860 election. You could get all the federal pork through your senators and your and your member of Congress. That we were sort of, we were scrabbling for with our one you know uh, territorial representative in Congress. Right. So I don't even gets to vote in Congress. He just went there, to, got to go to the meetings. Um, so that that kind of gives Oregon this special uh, status compared to Washington. And it also seems like Portland is sort of truly the cultural capital of Oregon. Where in Washington we've got we've got Seattle on the west side. Spokane on the east side, and we're kind of, there isn't one sort of central city in, I mean, Seattle obviously is the biggest city and the, and the, and the right. most dominant, but it seems like Portland and the programs you guys do, you truly reach around the state in a way that I don't think Seattle-based organizations are able to do with the other side of the mountains. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. No, and that's what we try to do. We are the, I mean, we are not the Portland Historical Society. We are the Oregon Historical Society. Yeah. We are, we're based in Portland, and many of our programs are in Portland, but we also try to get around the state. We've been traveling exhibits around the state. We have a, we have all the little county historical societies uh, we have a relationship with, and we offer help, and, and in a very robust online presence yeah. where you can go online and you can, you know, see some live streams or watch recordings of our program. So we, we try our, our, our best to, to reach around the state. Yeah, and the journal that you guys put out either three or four times a year is just, there's nothing like it in Washington. The, you, thank you, the you, Oregon Historical Quarterly, which yeah. we've had for over a century, and it is, yeah, it's phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, you know, peer-reviewed articles on all things uh, Oregon history. One of my our favorite assets is the Oregon Encyclopedia, which is essentially Wikipedia for all things Oregon. Only all the entries are true and accurate. <laughs> you don't know how to get the, <laughs> the other way. It's peer-reviewed, yeah. and you could spend a weekend diving down article after article of the people, places, and things in Oregon. It gets yeah. a million hits a year now. And the number one, I get a monthly report on the most read entry that month. The runaway winner, almost all every month of the year, is the entry, believe it or not, on Bigfoot. <laughs> that, that, that doesn't surprise me. Is Amy Platt still working for that organization? Amy is still works for the She's fabulous. Media, so she's, I will give her your best. Yeah, so. she's fabulous. I've, she wrote, when I was editing Columbia, the kind of the magazine for the State Historical Society here, I did that for a couple of years. Amy contributed a few pieces, and she's always super helpful with questions and photographs and stuff that I've that I you know, ran into in some of the other work that I do. So, And, and the, the most popular video that you can watch when you go into our digital collection now is the uh, 
You'd probably guess this, Felix, is the video of the exploding whale. Of course. Yeah, I was going to say D.B. Cooper probably comes in there second, because that's, that's the one thing that unites, I think, Oregon and Washington more than any other cultural factor is D.B. Cooper, the fact that he took off from Oregon, right. he came to Washington, and then he maybe disappeared over Washington again. But we sort of share that kind of bridges the Columbia, that, that whole story. We and, recently and, remastered the, the video of the exploding whale in brighter and better color. I mean, that whale explodes. <laughs> you get the red, redder than ever before. So. <laughs> if, if people don't know what we're talking about, is that easy to find on your website? Or the, it is. Okay. Just, yeah, go yeah, type in, the, you know, if you go search in the search engine and type in Exploding Whale in our collection, and you'll get more than you want to know. Yeah, so. that's great. It's, you know, I, I've worked at the Museum of History and Industry here in Seattle for about seven years in the late 90s to the early 2000s. Not exactly pre-internet, but certainly pre-YouTube. And just the changes in how local history can be presented and shared in those, the 20, what is it, I guess 17 years since I left Mohai. It's like a different world. I mean, I, because I, you've been at the Historical Society for, for about a decade now? Thir- 13 years. 13, now, yeah. you mentioned that. That's right. Okay. And it's, I mean, even, that, even in that time period of 13 years, technology has done so oh, many amazing absolutely. things. I think, and I've said this on this show many times, I think Facebook in particular, where people like the, the Historical Society or some other authority can post images and then other people can chime in and post their own photographs from the, when they went to visit the particular thing or, this, there's sort of this um, democratization of sharing local history that I just I love about social media. There's plenty of terrible things about social media, but I think local history has some really nice things going for it in the way that, that people can connect that they didn't used to be like 20 years ago. Oh, absolutely. And whenever we do a program on Banford, which, of, which was the town, of course, uh, that Henry Kaiser built in World yeah. War II yeah. for the, his people, the, the, the workers in the shipyards that lived, he had to build a whole city for him. became the second largest city in Oregon almost overnight. And then was destroyed by a flood in 1948. Whenever we do anything about Banford, we are, we are no pun intended, flooded with people coming in to see uh, and want to know more about Banford. Now, people are fascinated with history. And, and one thing we found, Felix, is our research library, a whole new field in what, what I call uh, kind of uh, house genealogy, where you'll, you'll buy a house, a new house on at 732 Hawthorne Street or whatever, and you come mm-hmm. over to our research library to find out what we have on the neighborhood, photos of the neighborhood, blueprints of your house maybe, or the house next to you. Neat. Uh, and you can you follow the history of your neighborhood through uh, you know, information you get in our research library. Yeah, it's very, it's very cool. Now, of course, it's, we're just about a week away from Christmas. It's a week from Christmas Eve, actually. And what I want to talk to you about you to talk with you tonight about was this notion of sort of, I mean, I know that in Seattle we have Frederick and Nelson was a big department store. The Bon Marche right. was another department store. And, you know, there's the big colored lights on top of the tower for King TV up on top of Queen Anne Hill. And I know the Seattle stuff pretty well, but I'm curious if there are similar things or what some of the traditions have been or might still be in the kind of the Portland metro area for, for holiday programs and holiday displays. And that you sort of bet. Thing. And one of them we have up now, I mean, here it's Oregon was Meyer and Frank. Myron Frank was the leading department store. It started in almost the 1850s, before statehood. And from then, you know, built and until the 1980s when it sold to Macy's, to the May Company, Myron Frank was the end-all and be-all in Oregon. In the downtown, the mainstream, the flagship downtown Myron Frank, for 50 years from the 1950s to 2000, had Santa Land. Okay. On the 10th floor... Uh, it had a complete set of, of think it's a small world at Disneyland. Early animatronics, <laughs> elves, animatronic elves, and animatronic Rudolph, and a tram that ran on the ce- around the ceiling of the tenth floor, uh, where little kids, you know, you had to be this tall to ride, you know, probably six or seven and under. 
could ride in the tram and go around Santa Land. Oh, wow. For half a century, that was a Portland tradition. Wow. Where you would go to them, my Frank, you'd go shopping, your parents would put you on the tram, and you'd go to <laughs> Santa Land. So when, when the downtown Macy's, uh, which what my Frank became, when they closed down in 2015, uh, 2016, they gave us the Santa Land set. Oh, and wow. we put it up every year. It's just part of the set, the, the reindeer, the elves, the Christmas tree, Santa's throne. We can't, <laughs> the, the, the tram is too big for us to bring that down, although we do have one in our vault out in uh, Portland suburb where we keep the 100,000 square foot warehouse. And people, Felix, flock to it. Yeah, uh, I bet. Parents, you know, kids, parents who were kids 30, 20 years ago and went, now bring their kids back. And especially when we have Santa in last Sunday, Santa made his one Christmas appearance at OHS. We had 400, 500 people there waiting in line <laughs> to see, get pictures with Santa and Santa's throne in front of, of Santa Land. It's, oh, it's wow. amazing how many people still want to come in and see that. That's uh, pretty so wait, so, so the, that is the, probably the most memorable, you know, uniting Portland tradition. But there, but there are others. You mentioned Frederick and Nelson. They, of course, they had to respond to Santa Land, and they had cinnamon there which was a radio show that ran for almost 63 Christmas seasons from like in the mid-1930s to uh, early 2000s, where uh, a daily radio show from Thanksgiving to Christmas where the adventures of Patio Cinnamon, who was a cinnamon bear, were, were told. Yeah. That, that's a pretty psychedelic show. I've, I've tried to listen to it. There's about 25 episodes, oh. and you have to really like, go through all the... Uh, the root beer ocean and all these really very psychedelic kind of things are, are things that were, must have been fantastical to kids who were, you know, starving during the Great Depression and fantasizing about, you know, uh, woods made of candy canes and that sort of stuff. And so we have the cinnamon bear costume. That's that, great. That was on display in Santa Land as well. And we have the Santa Land set will stay up until uh, the New Year's at OHS. But hmm. uh, more, some more modern day traditions, uh, the lighting of the Christmas tree like they do in Rockefeller Plaza. We do it here at Pioneer Square on the day after Thanksgiving. Okay. Uh, is when that in, in Pink Martini, the great kind of iconic, you know, musical orchestra group, is always always performing. Pioneer Square also features Tuba Christmas for 32 years. <laughs> it's, you go down and see, you know, 65, 75 tuba players playing playing Christmas carols. Uh, there's the Christmas ships on the Willamette River that's been going for almost 70 years. Started with one boat. Now there's 55 to 60 who have Christmas lights, and you, you get seats down by the river or in a restaurant by the river, and you watch the Christmas ships cruise by. Um, mm. Probably the most popular one in terms of people, uh, Felix, is zoo life. Um, the Oregon Zoo puts up its display millions, millions of lights. Okay. And and you walk through. It's a walk-through thing where there's the lights are in shape of animals and that type of thing, yeah. and that is a holiday tradition for Families and parking has just become a nightmare for did, it. You want to? Do they still have the train? The they have the little train at the Portland Zoo still. Correct. They have a little train. Oh, good. Okay. Around, ride yeah. around, Very and, cool. and see the zoo lights. Uh, one of my favorites. You know, this Portland is used to be the home of White Stag, the uh, attire company. Yeah, yeah. Clothes company, and their emblem was a white stag, a deer. During the holiday season, they put a red light on the deer's nose, <laughs> and, it's, and it's Rudolph. <laughs> lights up uh, during the holiday season. And then a, a lot of people enjoy, there's a beautiful home in the West Hills of Portland that you can see from downtown. Every holiday season, somehow he's arranged this beautiful light display in the shape of a martini glass. <laughs> <laughs> and that lights up, lights up during the holiday season. I'm still, I'm kind of stuck on the tram thing again. Was it like a, uh, 
the was the the tram ride something like a from the carnival industry or some kind of a like an overhead yeah, conveyor overhead system? Yeah, it was very uh, historic. It's one of the only few two or three or four that this, this company made, and it was wow. attached to the ceiling somehow. And you would you know ride around in the tram. Uh, and whenever people come out and see the the car now, of course they'll say, "Oh my gosh, it's so much smaller than I remember it." Well, that's because it was, you were two yeah. when you were riding it back then, and now you're fifty two. So. <laughs> And and Meyer and Frank they they were independent until the 1980s. They were independent until the 1980s when wow. they uh, sold the May D and F, and uh, as many companies did, yeah. and eventually became Macy's. Yeah, because we you know we sort of went through the same kind of process up here. We had Frederick and Nelson, and they right. they sold out to Maya. They sold out to um, uh, what's the big one in the uh, in Chicago? I'm blanking. Oh, Marshall on. Field. Marshall Field. They sold out to Marshall Field back in 1929. So they right. but they they were sort of operated independently of Chicago for most of their their existence. Then they went away in the in the early 90s, and that, that building is now the flagship Nordstrom store. And we have, uh, you know, we have this big uh, lighted star on the side of what used to be the Bon Marche that goes, dates right. back to the 1950s, but uh, we don't have Christmas tubas. That sounds pretty cool. Um, you know, you mentioned Pioneer Square. I was looking, I was down there a couple of years ago. Yeah, it must have been three or four years ago now, I guess, even before the pandemic. But I noticed that there's some old um, above ground, like an old classic a restroom facility that's not accessible to the public anymore. Do you know much about that? It's like it looks like it's from the turn of the century, right? Well, it, you know, Pioneer Square, like so many other places, went through some uh, you know interesting times during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, where things were closed, <clears throat> and uh, you know, there used to be the KGW, the NBC affiliate down here, used to have a studio on the square oh, where, where they would do the morning news. That's and that right. Closed down for that's a while, right. and, but it's it's coming back to life as many as many places are, and uh, there's uh, always something going on there. Of course, during the holiday season. The yeah. lighting of the tree and like tuba tuba Christmas, which was this weekend, was yesterday, I believe, was tuba Christmas. Yeah. Now, um, with your 125th anniversary celebration, uh, I guess, sort of wrapping up after after a full year, what do you guys have planned for the coming year? What's what's ahead for the Oregon Historical Society in 2024? Well, we are just uh, in June. We'll open a new permanent exhibit on the history of Fort uh, called Rivers, Roses, and Rip City. Of course, mm. the famous you know, line by Bill Sean, Lever City, of a, the Blazer announcer, which will tell the story of the history of Portland mm. uh, in, in a permanent exhibit. Uh, we've got that coming up, uh, just new, three or four different new exhibits. And we have our Marco Hatfield Lecture Series, named after the late, great former governor and senator, Mark Hatfield, which we have four great lectures a year. And we've got the coup of the year this year, because on March 5th, We've got the author of the hottest book in America. We have Liz Cheney coming to speak at the series. Oh wow, that ought to be interesting. Whoa, that's great. That's I, you know, I think um, you have you had a political background, and um, when I worked for the Museum of History and Industry here in Seattle, my boss was uh, had some not exactly a political background, but he'd worked in local government and stuff. And I think historical societies that get that connection between the present and the past, and then the present and the future. It's a far more interesting and robust set of programs that can be developed if you're not just focused on, you know, what happened 100 years ago. I think that sounds like that sounds a really sharp way to do things. It's pretty cool. You know, the, it was Lonnie Bunch, who was, was head of the Smithsonian, said that museums are not, uh, you know, addicts of memories. They're cauldrons of ideas, you know, <laughs> paraphrase. And that's what we try to operate as. We're like, look, yeah, you know, as a historical society, sure, we, we protect it. We preserve the past, but we also look to the present and to the future and how we can learn from history. Um, and as I say, we're, you know, we're not the Chamber of Commerce. We're not the Tourism Bureau. Uh, those are important organizations. They serve a mission. We're the Historical Society, and our mission is to tell the truth, the good, the bad, and the ugly of Oregon history. And we've been very open about the fact that there, you know, 
history is not always pleasant. Yeah, that's we we you know the the historical society that you know, it was a Mohai the museum in Seattle is is a private nonprofit that I worked right. for and we we had in our past like back in the fifties and sixties and even even into the seventies really we were still doing that kind of what, what they call it hagiographic kind of stuff where it's right. everyone's you know, kind of the great white men of history and everyone's kind of saintly in their uh, conquering of the of the of the natives and everything and fortunately I mean I think pretty much. That those days are over, I think, for the most part, which is really great because um, the history is really interesting. Only if you can cover everything, you know, the, the truth, right. the scoundrels as well as the heroes and stuff that tells the true story. Um, it's definitely, and it's a, it's a, it's a challenging time in terms of. Um, I mean, it's there's the the stories are so much bigger now. There's so many more stories that are being acknowledged as part of the uh, the total story, not just the thread of the the white settlers arriving 150 years ago and you know, marking out the streets and everything, and then, then the city's done. I think this, like, I, I love, I'd love to be able to go to an exhibit about the history of Portland 100 years from now and look back at what the 21st century was like and how, you know, how things turn out. I mean, that's so much about the people that I like who, who focus on history are into it because they're excited about carrying into the future and what's going to happen next and how it all kind of ties together. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. And these are definitely, I mean, the last four or five years, I'm a little exhausted. Oh, been li- we've been living through history to the point where I'm a, l- I'm a little exhausted from all the history. No, we- and if, 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 there's a, if there's a theme of this Portland exhibit we're doing, it's that Portland has always faced challenges. Yeah. Uh, and, they've over- and they've worked together to overcome them. And yeah. I think hopefully Portlanders will work together to, you know, overcome the challenges we've been facing in the last couple of years. And Bill Shonley, what a cool guy. I know he, he just passed away in the last year or two. He, he was, did. He was a very yeah. good friend of mine. He, he was the best. And, and one of the items in the exhibit is the... Uh, the letter that Harry Glickman, who was the founder of the Trailblazers, sent to Bill Shonley, then working in Seattle, as yep. you might recall, yep. offering him the job of Trailblazers announcer in 1970 for the princely salary of $25,000 each. So. Yeah, because he had just he had just lost his job because the pilots had moved to right. Milwaukee and become the Brewers, and he was his the, the the career as a baseball announcer he'd envisioned had just dried up. He didn't want to move his family to, uh, to to Wisconsin, which everyone all of us can understand. And so, yeah, I, I interviewed him a few times over the years, mostly about the pilots. But he told me about that, how thrilled he was to be offered the job to go to Portland, and just a, what a great voice that guy had. He was so he much was fun to talk to. City, so. That's the thing. I also I, the connection between history and politics. For me, the connection between history and media is so key. I mean, I love talking to old radio guys, old TV guys, old newspaper reporters. They're the ones. Who, I mean, they're the front lines of history. They're the ones who tell. They they tell the truth. You know, on a, on a deadline. They don't have time to curate. They don't have time to do anything. They have to tell it in a hurry. And they just that's 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 critical. And we when I was at Mohai, we were always trying to figure out ways that we could operate the museum like it was a media organization, like telling stories and sharing information and kind of you know producing stories the way a media organization would do. And I think that's that's the key to good museums moving forward: is great exhibits with real artifacts when you go in person. But also this ability to push stuff out, whether it's written or video or audio or whatever. It's sort of got to, got to kind of have to do it all nowadays. So anyway, well, listen, it's really nice talking to you on the 125th anniversary of the Oregon Historical Society. Congratulations on all the great work you guys have done and uh, good luck for coming up in 2024. And we've had several members of your staff on this show in the last year and a half that we've been on the air. And I just, I, I love working with you guys. You always, always bring great stories to us and you well, share cool photos. Thanks and, very much. And let yeah. me know when you're down here, Felix. I'd love to give you a tour and, and take you out to our vault. It's like a, like the end of the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, oh. where they hide the ark in the warehouse the size of South Dakota. That's kind of what our our vault is like. It's chock full of fabulous stuff. You know, so. Careful. I'd feel, I might feel so at home. I might, I might want to never leave. But anyway, yep, I, yep. I will take you up on your offer. Thanks, Kerry. Merry Christmas. You and bet. thanks for joining us on Cascade of History. Have a good night. You bet. Bye-bye.
That's Kerry Timchuk. He's the director of the Oregon Historical Society down in Portland. Joining us to here on Cascade of History, talking about museums and uh, Portland holiday traditions. All right, and coming up in just a few minutes, we're going to be talking about Spokane holiday traditions. We're kind of skips, hops, what's hopskitching? Hops, <laughs> hopscotching around the Northwest to, uh, like we do on the show, we try to, the more people in different states of Oregon, Idaho, Washington, and the province of British Columbia, the more people we can talk to in different parts of the region, the more fun the show is, I think, because it's, uh, we're the only show doing regional history like this live on a Sunday night. That's a lot of qualifiers, I realize, but still, uh, it's still an important thing, a role that we take on here. All right, so Anna Harbine's going to join us in just a few minutes. Uh, before we bring her on, let's take a little uh, dive into the archives here and play some Christmas music. First of all, let's play a really, I want to play a really key, this is one of the most important pieces of audio, I think, in, uh, in Northwest Christmas history. I like this, this, this takes me back to about oh, 1982. Merry Christmas! I think the Payless, the Northwest Payless drugstore chain is long gone. I think it got bought out by Rite Aid about, boy, 25 years ago, maybe, maybe even longer. But that Merry Christmas from Payless jingle. Let's hear it one more time. Merry Christmas from Payless. Merry Christmas. That's a very sticky jingle. It really, once you hear it, you kind of, remember for me, I'm, again, I'm taken back about 40 years or more to the early 80s or maybe even maybe even earlier than that. I'm not sure when it first appeared, but uh, it's just, there's nothing, very few bits of audio say Christmas in the Northwest as much as this. Merry Christmas from Payless. Merry Christmas. All right, and some other things that say Christmas in the Northwest is, of course, the instrumental, instrumental band from Seattle, The Ventures, and they put out this incredible Christmas album about, I think it was 1965, where they took traditional Christmas songs and sort of filtered them through contemporary rock songs of that era. So you have kind of a blend of two songs. The most famous one is um, Sleigh Ride. That's one you probably heard on the radio a lot. This is another cut from that album from the Ventures from 1965 here on Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM.
Adventures on Space 101.1 FM on our Sunday night live broadcast of Cascade of History, the only live radio program devoted to history, historic organizations, historic preservation, museums, and people doing cool stuff with and for Pacific Northwest history around the old Oregon country, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia. Well, we already uh, paid a visit to the Beaver State with our talk with Kerry Timshuck of the Oregon Historical Society a moment ago. Oh, and we've listened to the Ventures from Tacoma, Washington, with their version of Silver Bells, which I think is filtered through that Sam the Sham and the Pharaoh song, Wooly Bully. That would be my, I would think that's the pairing of that song. If you, if you think of all the songs on that Ventures 1965 Christmas album as being filtered through some pop song of that time, I'm pretty sure that's Silver Bells and Wooly Bully. Anyway, uh, in continuing our little voyage around the Pacific Northwest here in advance of the Christmas holiday and looking into Christmas tradition, we have uh, Anna Harbine, who is, I want to say her title properly before I bring her on here. I wrote it down so I would say it correctly because it's a really great title. It is the Johnston Fix Curator of Archives and Special Collections at the Museum of Arts and Culture in Spokane. Are you there, Anna Harbine? I am. Hello. Did I get your title correct? Yes, you did. Okay, it's a very good. large mouthful. So that is, that, that is, that's, a, that's, a, that's one of the longest titles I've ever seen. Outside yeah, of like the uh, small like duchy in like Central Europe or something, right? Right. So. Well, and it's just a fancy title for archivist, so you know I Terrific. always use the short one at home. But now, for those for those who may not know the Spokane history or the Museum of Arts and Culture, tell us a little bit about it. What is that organization? What is that institution all about? Uh, well, we've been around for over a hundred years. Um, we're actually the Eastern Washington State Historical Society. That is our government agency that um, runs and operates the museum. Um, we've had several museums over the years, um, all been the same collection, and uh, the Northwest Museum of Arts and Culture has been um, this big, beautiful campus um, since uh, 2001. And um, yeah, it's got a historic house, um, amazing collections. It's um, a fun place to come and visit. How long have you worked there? Um, I've worked there for Almost ten years. Oh, okay. Years. Now, are you are you a Spokane person originally, or? Yes, for the most part. Okay. Yeah. No, that's great. That's great. So, did you go to that museum when you were? Well, I guess that museum wasn't there when you were a kid necessarily. But did you go to some version of that museum when you were a kid? Yeah, um, I actually don't ever really remember going inside the museum, other than on a um, date, going <laughs> on a date there, um, <laughs> right right out of right out of uh, high school. So that, that I do remember that. Um, okay. And then I remember Art Fest. The um, the museum hosts this big um, local artist fair every year, and um, they have a tent called the Make It Art Tent for Kids. And I remember going with my grandmother um, when I was young um, outside of the Campbell House and making uh, marbled paper. So oh, that's cool. The, the fun things you remember. See, and that's the thing. Like, if and if you if you work at a museum or if you work in some sort of a program where you're you come into contact with kids and you put on like Parks and Recreation or something, you put on programs you might create these indelible memories that people have with them their whole life. And it was just oh, some yeah. silly thing you did on an afternoon where you got out some paint and put out a thing on a table and, you know, had people make, you know, glue macaroni to orange juice cans or whatever. But it has this ability to kind of transcend time. I think that's pretty cool, the impact that you can have on people with just silly little goofy programs. And, I, you know, I, I grew up going to the Museum of History and Industry here in Seattle, and we used to go to the Christmas Trees Around the World program. And that just, I mean, I have vivid memories of that. And when I worked at the museum mm -hmm. 25 years ago, almost 25 years ago, we brought back a version of that program because it had been so memorable and so much fun to do. And because it's just, it's, you know, it's a great time of year. I mean, 
history is always wonderful year-round, but there's something about the holidays that I don't know, it's a little more sentimental or nostalgic, and families are together more often, and it's sort of, you know, it's a special time. And I, I've got family in Spokane, and we visit there quite a bit. Haven't spent too many Christmases there, but um, I've been in the downtown part of Spokane, and I can imagine there must be some great traditions that happen there every year. And so I wanted to reach out to you guys and see if there's some things that stretch back in history, if there's some contemporary things, and kind of mm-hmm. what the holidays mean in, in the Spokane area this time of year. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I had to brush up a little on my history. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what I do. Uh, but, uh, yeah, there's, there's quite a few things that stick out when, um, when I first started thinking about this. Um, I think the thing everyone in Spokane um, remembers is the Crescent Department Store. Um, it was this big, kind of like Sears and Roebuck um, store. It sold everything from clothing and furniture to automobile parts. Hmm. Um, but they uh, they started um, in Spokane right after um, Spokane has it had its big 1889 fire in August. That's right. They actually opened the next day coincidentally, um, and sold out within, you know, a few hours. But Wait, um, no, so its very first day in business was the day after yeah. the Spokane fire? Yeah. Wow. The, the fire happened the night before. They had already planned to open. Wow. And, um, yeah, it put them out of business pretty quickly, and um, they got um, a lot of kind of, of a reputation of being there for the city. Wow. Um, they, they moved from their um, original location to a downtown um, department store location in 19... 19- uh, 19, 1920 ish. And okay. they, um, they were kind of known as the place you meet up with. They had this clock in the um, center of the store and everybody would say, meet me, um, at the Crescent under the clock. It was just, mm. it was kind of a gathering point. Neat. Everybody, um, especially from a certain period, uh, remembers going down to the Crescent. But, um, I think kind of the lasting memory of that is they were part of this vibrant downtown shopping scene downtown Spokane um, had these big bustling department stores um, and they would decorate outside. You would have Christmas lights um, with little uh, bells or figures um, hanging in the middle, kind of in the middle of the street between the light poles, um, just decorating downtown and trying to attract visitors to come down. And the Crescent had um, these big Christmas displays in their windows. They were kind of known for their window displays, and Christmas in particular was um, fantastic. There are stories of people actually wanting to buy um, items out of the Christmas displays. Um, there's that one story of a couple who bought a artificial tree out of one of the displays and wrapped it up with some wrap and <laughs> took it home because um, they wanted that perfect Christmas, which uh, the Crescent kind of was known for displaying and offering. No. Another. Uh, Wait, before, did, when did the crescent go away? Do you know? They um, they kind of started to really wind down operations. They um, by by the 1980s. Okay. They were um, kind of they had they had some other satellite stores, but they were really gone. Their heyday, though, uh, was the the height of their business was really between the 1920s through the 1960s. Okay. And uh, is the building and, still there, or is there some part of the crescent? Any artifacts visible still? The clock is still there, oh. um, but the building itself has gotten a modern uh, facelift. So okay. it, it doesn't quite look the same as it used to. Okay. Um, and there's a mix of offices and uh, other businesses that are kind of in there now. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. The other, the other um, downtown kind of hallmark was the Bon Marche, which had this gorgeous 
stained glass Madonna and child that they would put out um, every Christmas. Um, and that, that was another kind of hallmark of that Christmas season. Um, most people, when they see it, recognize it. It's actually now on the display of, on another apartment building. Oh, so, so it's, um, it still exists. You see it all year round. Hmm? It still exists year round? Yeah, yeah, it's, oh. it's up now year round. Once the Bon Marche closed, um, wow, a couple of years ago, kind of, kind of takes away the the specialness. If it's, <laughs> is yeah. it is it backlit or is it inside or outdoors, exposed um, to the weather or? It's it's outside. It's okay. designed to be outside. So um, interesting. It's on a, it's on a retirement community um, home that's um, part of the Catholic um, system. It's uh, it's gorgeous. Um, it's pretty iconic. We've had artists actually recreate it as poster prints, um, but it's just one of those um, nostalgic mid-century kind of um, Christmas memories. That That's cool. Has. I have to look next yeah. time I go. I'm gonna have to look for that. Do you know? Do you know the address of the cross streets off the top of your head? I don't, okay. but it is downtown, um, okay. and it is one of those modern '60s-looking apartment buildings on the west side. Of Got town. it. Okay, I'm gonna look for that next time I'm in Spokane. That sounds cool. Okay, yeah, very yeah. cool. Wow. Yeah, and the Bon Marche, of course, is a Seattle-based store that, you know, uh-huh. dates to the 1890s, and they had locations all over the Northwest. They got bought out back in the, in the 20s by the big, like, the uh, Allied or one of the big department store companies. Yeah. But they were yeah. they were allowed to operate regionally. Same same thing happened with Frederick and Nelson, the, the other Seattle-based yeah. department store yeah. chain. So, huh, Well, okay. and another Seattle-based department store chain, Nordstrom, also has a really great Christmas um, tradition that they had done in Spokane for years kind of continued on in other locations but they used to do a breakfast with santa oh um, wow yeah yeah when i was in speaking with my husband who who's born and raised in spokane uh, he remembers going and um, <laughs> seeing uh, ballet dancers dance a scene from the nutcracker um, during this breakfast with santa at nordstrom which was uh, pretty special for him so I our, miss those days when department stores had dining rooms or play, big big oh, yeah. halls where you could have events like that. I think most of them yeah. that stuff's all that stuff's all thing of the past now. Shoot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, great. they still do breakfast with Santa, um, but it's through our um, children's museum, Mobius. Oh so wow! So they do a breakfast with Santa down at the historic Davenport, which is a perfect place to do it because it's all decked out in all of the Christmas decorations. Um, it, it's it's fantastic. Oh, so we, like the interior and exterior of the Davenport gets decorated at Christmas too? Um, yeah, the the interior does, and they do a lot of um, kind of fun things around the holidays too. So there's um, usually there's the um, there's this fundraiser where people get a vote on their favorite trees and ah, okay. like prizes, and every you know these businesses sponsor a tree, and they're they're fantastically decorated. And then there's you know gingerbread house contests that are throughout the area and, you know, just um, all the kind of classic things that you kind of picture um, going on around Christmas, but in kind of a fun, um, repeatable every year holiday way. And Spokane, I like, I mean, it's, you know, Seattle, of course, we're on Puget Sound. So there's, there's sort of a saltwater vibe and the city, you know, faces the, you know, the inlet from the Pacific Ocean. Spokane's mm-hmm. on a river and it's, you know, I hadn't, before I started spending time in Spokane, when I family moved there like 15 or 20 years ago, I never, I never spent much time on a river city like right. that, and it's a different. There's just a different vibe to it. It's a different. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I can't quite ex- describe it very well. I'm, I'm failing to describe it very well, but it's just sort of, 
you got stuff on either side of the river, obviously, and there's mm-hmm. all these different bridges. And it's just Portland's Portland's kind of similar with the with the yeah. Willamette running right through town. It just sort of creates a different vibe than the city like Seattle, where you just the water's just there, and you kind of mm-hmm. you have to cross mm-hmm. parts of it, but you don't have to cross it the way you have to cross a river all the time. I don't know. Maybe right. maybe that's totally silly, but I think it does. It it says something. It it contributes somehow to the character of the city, I guess. All those bridges and yeah. the river running right through town, and especially. Riverfront Park there. I, I love the ice skating rink they set up at the around yes. wintertime. That's, oh, yeah. a, that's a great place to go in Spokane. It's pretty fantastic. Ice skating actually has a lot of um, memory and kind of sway in the city. We've had um, multiple different ice rings around town. Um, there's lots of people who have memories of going ice skating up at Manitou Park. Um, you know, the, it, and Riverfront Park, especially since um, its creation after the World's Fair in 1974, which coming up on its 50th anniversary that's right um that that kind of cleanup of the river um really adds just a special um treat um the riverfront park does a light display every year that you get to walk through for christmas and the holiday season and it's just it's wonderful um yeah and also speaking of expo expo 74 did a really fun christmas tree even though they weren't open (laughs) during christmas um they they uh they actually had the first city recycling program to collect tin cans wow. and they built this giant christmas tree out of tin cans and it's just this really cool thing <laughs> but they closed at the beginning of november so it's kind of the very end of the thing wow time it's all about the timing um, oh, yeah. Now, what you mentioned, Manitou Park, and I love Manitou Park mm-hmm. up on the South Hill. It's got that very cool sort of late 19th century kind of vibe. And I've seen those pictures where they have yeah. like monkey cages and <laughs> like those sort of very yep. politically incorrect yep. animal jails that zoos used to be. But I didn't know there was a skating rink there. Do you Where where was the skating rink and what was that it like? It wasn't a skating rink. It's their natural pond. Um, oh. You know, it's a big duck yeah. pond. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's been there since it was a zoo. And yeah, there's, oh. um, yeah, there was. That was one of the main spots people like to go ice skating. There's a couple other parks That's with some water right. features that people ice skated on, including Liberty Park, That's which is right. no longer here. That was the the freeway ran through it, and then um, <laughs> a couple. There's a couple others, and then um, we also are surrounded by a lot of small lakes. Yeah. So uh, lots of people um, have memories. See, we're more of like a you know a lake culture city. There's <laughs> a lot of cabins and people going out in the summer, <laughs> but people also go up to their cabins during Christmas and um, cut down their own Christmas tree, go ice skating. Um, you know, I hear lots of stories, um, including stories from my own family and my husband's family, of um, going out into the woods and cutting down a Christmas tree, sometimes without a permit, and <laughs> dragging it all the way back to the house to decorate. So um, that's. You know, and um, you know, we also have a lot of Christmas tree farms now. I think that's, that's our family cool. tradition as we go to a farm and cut down our own tree. See, I forgot you guys have the weather too. You guys get the nice. Yeah. I, them, probably half the times I've been in Spokane around the holiday season, there's been snow on the ground or snow coming down, and it's and it's been the the lighted even just a simply lit house with a string of lights on it looks a million times mm-hmm. better than it does you know when they're in a place like Seattle where the snow is much <laughs> more rare. So. Um, and my favorite, my favorite Christmas activity is going to Rose Hours and getting like a twelve pack of like uh, Rainier. Now, they don't, they don't, they, there's not like a Spokane <laughs> beer that's like the way Rainier is in Seattle. There's not a beer that's yeah. to Spokane, is there? No, there's. Um, we have a big beer culture. Yeah, there's a lot yeah. of breweries. Lots of people in town have their own favorite brewery. So um, you'll see a lot of Christmas parties around town at different um, tasting rooms, and um, yeah, it's. Um, 
But in terms of a rot gut, like a rot gut old time beer, I can't really think of yeah, one that I associate with Spokane. Old time beer. Yeah, okay. I think uh, I think <laughs> No Lie is probably the closest we have to kind of a mainstay. But okay, uh, you know, uh, we used to. I mean, there was all kinds of breweries in town, but yeah, um, yeah not not in the same kind of holding space. Yeah, maybe a Pabst Blue Ribbon is a little more our style. That makes sense. That makes sense. All right. Well, Anna Harbine, the Johnston Fix Curator of Archives and Special Collections at the Museum of Arts and Culture, or the MAC in Spokane. Thanks for joining us on Cascade of History to share all those great memories and traditions and nostalgic things about the holidays in Spokane. This is this now Christmas feels like Christmas is really coming now. I feel like this is sort of like this has moved me forward more forward into the holiday spirit than I was like 15 minutes ago. <laughs> well, thank you for having me and. Have a wonderful holiday. And let's have you back on the show again sometime. Reach out if you got an exhibit coming up or other cool stuff you come across. We love to hear stories about oh, local yeah. history from around the region, so please keep in touch. I'm happy to do right. that. Merry Christmas. Thanks a lot. Merry Christmas. Right. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Anna Harbine with the MAC, the Museum of Arts and Culture in Spokane, joining us here on Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. Now, uh, I don't want the hour to get away uh, without playing this week's installment of Blackie of Natchez Valley. You remember the cliffhanger that last week's installment ended on. Well, now we're going to find out what happens next. And this, I think, is probably, this isn't the final episode. It might be the second to last episode. So here we go with this week's installment of Blackie of Natchez Valley from 1951. What are you doing out here in the dark, Hugh? Go back, Abby. Go back to the campfires. You're running away with Blackie. What if I am? See that big fire they're building? That's so they can see to shoot Blackie and butcher him. But, Hugh, they always do that when an oxen's hurt. They aren't going to kill Blackie. He can't pull, but he can walk till his leg gets well. But the cougars will get you. I got a rifle. I'll, I'll never see you again. You tell them that I went down the river, that I went back, see? No. If they catch me, I'll know you snitched, and I'll never speak to you again. I, I couldn't lie, Hugh. I couldn't. Hugh! Hugh Kearney! Hugh! Hugh Kearney! Well, we've been all through the train. He's gone. You shouldn't have tried to take Blackie from him. Don't you know how strong a boy's love for an animal can be? He'll die for Blackie. He may be dead already. Oh, now, Mother, I, I saw Hugh with Abby not two hours ago. He couldn't go far in that time with a crippled ox. Abby! Abby, come out from behind that bush. Yes, Pa. Which way did Hugh go? I didn't see him go. Don't lie to me, Abby. That boy couldn't move without you watching him. I'll handle this, Captain. Abby, the reason that everyone is so worried is that from all over these mountains, cougars will be after that crippled no. ox. They'll get Hugh, too. No, he's got a rifle. Yes, but how can he see to shoot? The mountains are dark. Now tell us, honey, which way did he go? Back, down the river. No. Downey, Kincaid, Biles, bring lanterns. Get moving. I didn't lie. I closed my eyes so I wouldn't see him go. Come on, Blackie. What'd you stop for? I'll push you, darn it. Can't budge you. We aren't even two miles from camp. Do you have to just stand there without moving? Please, Blackie, come on. I never saw you act like this before. 
I wish you could tell me what's the matter. <gasps> Must be a cougar. They say they sound like a baby. What am I going to do? I can't see to shoot. It's too dark. Where are you going, Blackie? Wait for me, Blackie. Not that way. That's back to camp. Darn you, Blackie, wait for me. Aren't you going to drive the wagon like you always do? Mother's driving it. They won't let me do anything. They treat me like I was a baby. But you saved Blackie just the same. Papa said they wouldn't kill him now. The scouts found some meadows full of deer only two days away. They say it's the top of the mountains. You can see almost down to Puget Sound. Everyone's so happy. Well, I don't care. I think you were awfully brave to go out in the mountains with those cougars there. Brave? I was so scared I couldn't even swallow. Even Blackie had more sense than I did. And everybody knows it. The men won't even speak to me. They just grunt. Even Mother doesn't love me anymore. She looks at me like I, like I didn't smell good. She's not mad, Hugh. Why, she cried awful when you were lost. You really hurt her. She thought you were killed. I just wanted to save Blackie. I didn't want to hurt anybody or make them mad. They aren't really mad. Papa isn't, and he's captain. He says it was a good thing you gave the women time to cry. Hmm. I don't think that cliffhanger was as, uh, as, as intense as last week's cliffhanger when we wasn't, weren't sure what was going to happen to Blackie. Well, it's good to see that Blackie is getting the care that he deserves and that Hugh's uh, figuring out how to find a way to save Blackie. And we'll wrap up the exciting conclusion of that story, which dates to 1951 and the great educator Gloria Chandler and that radio series, educational series called Their Name Was Courage. We'll wrap that up sometime in the new year because... Uh, <laughs> We won't, we won't be playing that on Christmas Eve, and we won't be playing it on New Year's Eve. But anyway, all right, it's, this is Cascade of History. I'm Felix Bennell at Space 101.1 FM. We're the only regional live history radio program. We stream all over the place at space101fm.org, and we're here on the FM radio at 101.1 in Seattle. And we, we you can get the episodes as a podcast, too, but it's always more fun to listen live, um, I think, anyway. And uh, you can also go to our Facebook page, Cascade of History. We've had something like 100 people have joined the Facebook page in the last week. Some, something, something clicked last week. I don't know what it was, but a lot of people came aboard. So if you're on the Facebook page, that's great. We try to get people to post photographs of stuff we talk about. We post links to things that are, that are going on around the region try to do kind of a mm, aggregate all sorts of different history news coming from different Facebook pages all over Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and British Columbia. Now, joining us now on the history line here is uh, Lori Carter. Lori, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Hey, thanks for coming on the show tonight. Um, you are involved with this effort that's going on down in Sumner in Pierce County, south of Seattle, to save the Ryan House. Um for just to give us a quick little update for people who might have missed the episodes that we talked about this before, what is the Ryan House and, and why does it need to be saved? Okay, the Ryan House was built before Washington became a state. It started out as a little cabin and then had a couple additions to it. It became a, quite a stately home. And uh, there is uh, the construction started probably the cabin in 1860, and uh, the other two additions were in the 
1880s. Uh, it was the home of the first mayor of Sumner. Uh, it was a post office at one point, uh, and Mrs. Ryan was the postmistress. Hmm. Uh, when she passed away, she deeded the uh, house to the city, and uh, it was done in 1926. Since then, it became at that point, it became the library for the city of Sumner, and then most recently became the Historical Society in 1979. So it's very historical. And it's very cool looking. It's a very cool looking building. I know different pieces of it were built in different phases back in the 19th century, but it's a very distinctive and very, I mean, there's nothing else like it in Sumner, certainly. And I know right. it's I know it's under threat because there's there's some con- the cities expressed some concern about some damage to it or some, some lack of maintenance, and a bunch of citizens like yourself and people in that area who love history and want to see that house preserved, are doing their darndest to try to raise awareness and raise money and kind of you know there's a legal effort. You sent me some information. I know there was something there was something at the courthouse yesterday. Can you give me an update on what's going on with with the effort to save the Ryan House? Right. So uh, there's actually two actions uh, to save the Ryan House. Uh, One of them is pending in front of the Growth Management uh, Hearings Board uh, that's challenging the demolition as a violation of the city's comprehensive plan and the Main Street uh, sub-area plan. But the item that was on the uh, docket in Pierce County Court on Friday was an action uh, challenging the city's issuance of the demolition permit based on uh, misrepresentation of the SEPA application process. Okay. So uh, what happened was, uh, so both of those have been filed. They are moving forward. Uh, the city filed a motion to have a summary judgment, and uh, they uh, felt that there was no standing, and they wanted it dismissed with prejudice. Yep. And what did the judge do? Well, um, there is a certain timeline that you have to file these by, and the hearing was already set up for December 15th to go over uh, preliminary information about, you know, what the timeline is for uh, between now and when the trial is going to take place. And they added this motion, but they did not give enough time. They have to give 28 days notice, uh. and they did not do that, so the judge did not hear their motion. Okay, so uh, so then both of those legal processes are going to wind their way through the system, but m- but meanwhile it seems like I see on social media all the time that there's whether it's a parade or Christmas lights or something, some group of volunteers is out there handing out flyers or shaking hands or making sure that the Ryan House is sort of playing a part in every single thing that's going on in Sumner lately. Is that, that is that a bit of an exaggeration or, or do I do I underestimate nope. what's going on? No, Felix, you are correct. We are making a presence. We have flyers. We had a a float in the parade with a big picture of the house on the truck. I love it. Uh, People spent like three days putting together that float. They did a wonderful job. Wonderful job. That's awesome. I love that whole community aspect of this. And just, I think I've been there. If I went, I can't remember if I went down to the house once or twice, but in, in being there in person and talking to people like you on the phone, there's just this palpable sense of community that I'm sure it was there before, but it wasn't as actively engaged in doing something that seems like there's you know, something really a, really of value at stake in what you guys are trying to do. That's, it's, it's, pretty, it's cool to watch from afar. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of envious that I don't live in Sumner and I can't be like down <laughs> at the barricades with you guys as part of the 
part of the effort, but it's fun to vicariously hear what's going on and to see the pictures from the parades and stuff. And I love the idea of a float devoted to the Ryan House being in the Christmas parade. That's just, that's brilliant. Right. It was great. It was great. <laughs> so in terms of milestones to look out for, I imagine in the new year, since the holidays are right upon us here, do you know what's, what's the next thing that we might keep our ears to the ground for, for in terms of news from either the legal side of things or the, uh, the city council side of things? Okay, so the uh, we go to the city council meetings every time there's a meeting and other meetings in town. We either attend in person or we attend virtually to keep an eye on what's going on. Uh, but we have the uh, uh, the trial is scheduled in the matter that was before the Pierce County Superior Court. Is uh, trial is March 11th. Okay. And uh, the um, growth management hearings board action is going to have a hearing on the merits of petition is at 1 p.m. on February 27th. Okay. And that is a Zoom meeting only. Okay. And the final decision on that order will be announced on April 8th. And, and in the meantime, the whole demolition permit process, that stuff's completely, uh, the pause button is on that legally, if do I understand correctly? That is correct. It okay. is on hold. All right, great. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, we're just about out of time on the show, but I appreciate you coming on and giving us the update. We're, we'll keep me posted. Uh, you, you're really good about sending me information when stuff's going on, and I really appreciate that. Please keep doing that. And let's plan okay. on talking again sometime in the new year. And uh, in the meantime, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And thanks for the efforts of you and all your colleagues down there to save a terrific local resource and have the people who don't understand why it's worth saving, have them understand it. You guys are doing a fabulous job and keep up the good work. Thank you, Felix. All right. Appreciate have a good it. night. Happy New Year. Merry okay. Christmas. Bye-bye. Lori Carter working to save the Ryan House down there in Sumner, Washington, and Pierce County. All right. Well, I want to thank all of our guests on this episode of Cascade of History here, skipping, hopscotching, <laughs> skip-scotching around the Pacific Northwest to Carrie Timchuk at the Oregon Historical Society, to Anna Harbine at the Museum of Arts and Culture, and Lori Carter down in Sumner with the friends, the people working to save the Ryan House. Um, this is our last live show of 2023. Next Sunday night, we'll have a Christmas special. I'm not sure what it's going to be exactly yet. It might Dust off one of the old radio dramas I produced 20 years ago, one of the ones starring Chris Wiedis and Bob Newman, you know, J.P. Patches and Gertrude. I'm thinking that might be next week's Christmas Eve special. And then on New Year's Eve, maybe we'll play last year's Christmas special. Not sure, but I, I won't probably won't do a live show until maybe the second Sunday in January, I'm thinking, just based on the way the calendar is rolling out. But thanks for all the great messages on Facebook. Thanks for tuning in to the live show. Thanks for following the podcast and logging on the Facebook page and everything. Really appreciate it. This show is all about community and Pacific Northwest history. It's so great to get together with you every week here on Space 101.1 FM, streaming at space101fm.org. If you feel like uh, making a tax-deductible contribution, you can go to space101fm.org and contribute to this station. We are a nonprofit. Pretty much everyone here is a volunteer, but we count on those kinds of dollars for equipment and for electricity and stuff like that. Anyway, uh, I didn't get a chance to play any more Stan Borson, but I guarantee we'll have some on one of our Christmas specials that we play uh, next week or on New Year's Eve. All right, everybody, uh, have a good Christmas, and thanks for tuning in. This is Space 101.1 FM. Yeah. 
That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it. That's a slippery spot there. Oh, I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonnell.